what makes you different makes you stand out. And that's a good thing. So I didn't view my gender as something that was a negative that I had to hide. It was something I leaned in on. Great career and life advice from Stacey Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Michael Rebo, and this is Blazing Trails, a podcast from Salesforce Studios. And I'm Rachel Levin, producer of Blazing Trails. And, you know, I love this conversation with Stacey because she really owns and celebrates the fact that she's a powerful woman in the world of finance, which, as we all know, Michael, is still very much a male-dominated world. It is. It is. And today, we hear her story of how she rose all the way from the trading floor to the C-suite and how teamwork got her there. So let's get into it and hear my conversation with Stacey Cunningham. Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Stacey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here, especially live. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for coming. Okay, so just tell me who you are, what you do. Just a quick overview of that would be great. Yeah, I'm Stacey Cunningham. I run the New York Stock Exchange, which is the world's largest exchange, 2,300 listed companies out there changing the world every day. Wow. Okay. That's a cool job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. We, uh, I like to say that I, I get to stand on the shoulders of all of them and, and the way that they're, we, we know that we play a small role in what's a much bigger part of a story. And the foundation underneath us is, is literally entrepreneurs and dreamers who are thinking about hatching ideas and finding ways to go out and get out there and make them happen. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me about the role the exchange plays in that a little bit. I think, you know, so coming to this conversation, I, I thought, well, I'm going to have a chance to talk to someone who really knows about this. Yeah. So what what is the role of the, of an exchange and the New York Stock Exchange in that entrepreneurial process? Yeah, I mean, our mission literally is to help companies access money so they can go out and change the world. And along the way, they're creating jobs, they're providing opportunities for others to share in that success. And so if I think about what's our goal, it's balancing those investor opportunities with investor protections to make sure that the markets are operating the way they're supposed to be so that when those investors are joining that journey, Mm -hmm. they can do so knowing that they have a level of protection that sits around being a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's that balance that I'm I'm focused on in so many different topics and so many different ways. It really comes back to that balance and that access to opportunity is a big driver for us. Mm-hmm. How do we connect people with the broadest set of opportunities? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Salesforce is, is such a great example. I mean, it's, it's a it's an iconic company and it's up 10,000% since it went public. Right. So if you think about investors being able to jump on that journey, yeah. that's a that's a big piece of what, what we're excited to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, so much has changed in how company, companies are going public. They're staying private longer the role of private money versus public, et cetera. How do you see that changing? What does the dynamic look like yeah, right now? It's changed so dramatically over the past several decades. Companies, as you say, have stayed private much, much longer. And that has been, you know, I think there are a number of downside effects. We talk a lot about why that is and why do companies stay private, the disclosures that come with being a public company, the challenges of being a public company. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of good things about being public, but there are definitely some challenges. Mm-hmm. But when you think about not just what are the reasons for companies staying private, but what are the consequences of companies staying private, that's when I start to get into the fact that companies are growing, hiring more people in the private markets without the discipline and the governance that the public markets instill. Mm-hmm. So their bad habits grow alongside with them. Mm-hmm. Their valuations, you know, when when two buyers and sellers are coming together to determine what it's worth in the public markets, 
they're doing that with a lot of information about the financials of a company. In the private markets, it's not based on a lot of buyers and sellers and a lot of uh, information. So the numbers that they're getting valued out very are, are very often not really reflective of what the public markets would value that company at, you know, at. And so that's a concern because when they stay private for a long time and they have sometimes inflated valuations, then they go public and public investors end up dealing with that repricing in the public markets. Well, that was going to be a question that I wanted to talk about, which mm-hmm. is, you know, in investors' minds in the private investment world, is the public footing the bill for... Yeah, they can be. And I think one of the reasons that we want to see companies go public sooner is you are then getting the information about their financials. You're getting more complete detail to make informed investment decisions. Uh And and one additional reason that I'll I'll mention that it's so important that companies go public, and this is the one that I'm most passionate about on a personal level, Uh is it just contributes to the bifurcation of wealth when Uh the fastest growing companies are only accessible to the few with means that can invest in the private markets. Uh And not every investor has that level of expertise to go out and find those private investments. So if we want capitalism to be something that works for more people, it Mm -hmm. needs to be a a story of shared success. Mm -hmm. And it's not a story of shared success if it's only happening in a subset of the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard you talk about democratizing markets and that the future, that's really the role that the New York Stock Exchange and others can play in that process. What does that look like? How does that actually happen? How much control do you have? And you're, you know, the, does the market have over that? How does that work? Yeah, the market forces work, right? I mean, investors can speak with their dollars on driving the change that we want to see. And we could talk about that on a number of fronts when you think about the impact that companies can have, and especially when they have the support of their investors to, to drive that impact. Mm-hmm. But democratization is such an important part of this being a story of shared success. And that comes down to how companies even go public. If you think about the allocation during the IPO process, the traditional process, banks would go out and they would help a company raise money and they would sell some shares the night before its first public listing day to a subset of investors. And those were very often their clients that they knew and and would have access to that opportunity that not everybody would would be on the the same, you know, have the same access. Mm -hmm. And so that's right there, not by definition, it's not a democratized uh, event. And then it's artificially constrained, not just on that side of the equation, but also on the supply side when a company would go public because their early investors, their employees were very often locked up from selling for some period of time. Mm-hmm. So what we did when Spotify came to us several years ago and said, hey, this we want to modernize the way this works. Mm-hmm. What about a direct listing? Let the market decide what the value of our company is instead of having it be through this IPO process. And right. so we worked with them on that for a year and a half before we were able to get it through the SEC so that we could get them public that way. Mm-hmm. That's really accomplished two different things. One, the cost of capital for the company that was selling the night before was much lower. So you're not watching that 100% pop on the first day and thinking, well, it's a great IPO, except for the fact that I was the one that sold it the night before. And right. so I could have, <laughs> I left some money on the table there. Yeah. But two, and I mean, this was really important to Daniel Eck, the CEO of Spotify, was that democratization of opportunity. So all of their customers, all investors were on a level playing field, not just for the first trade in the when it traded as a public company for the very first time, mm-hmm. but also in access to information. Mm-hmm. So their roadshow, you know, they went out and met with their target investors that they wanted to have, but they also did a webcast roadshow that anybody could see that provided them a lot of information and visibility 
into the company and what they were planning to do and where they were taking it. Mm -hmm. That was a real shift in how companies access the public markets and Mm -hmm. really put the public back into that story. Mm -hmm. And just so I know, what's the involvement of an investment firm in a bank in that process? They they play a key role. And that's one of the misnomers around a direct listing. I think very often people think it's cutting out the banks. And really what it's doing is they're working with the banks as financial advisors throughout that process. They're helping them with their S1. They're still going through all the disclosures that, that are required of a public company. That's not, there's not a a limitation on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that still happens. And you're paying, the companies are paying those investment banks for that service that they provide. Mm -hmm. They're not underwriting the offering. So they're not committing that capital at that moment in time during the listing day. It's really the market that's doing it. Mm -hmm. What's really been interesting about the direct listings to date and and the pace of companies choosing the path of a direct listing is increasing pretty significantly. Mm -hmm. They are the largest opening trades in U.S. market history because it's real buyers and sellers coming together to discover price. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. I mean, that, that's our job. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you say, how can you lean in on democratization of opportunity? That's one way when we just think about day one of a company, does everyone have access on a level playing field? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think about too, you, there's some interesting stuff that's happened recently with fractional share ownership, mm-hmm. with customer stock option kind of programs with, you know, different ways that people can get into the market that at, at just a lower cost, really. Yeah, much cheaper. It's free to trade now, right? So right. if you think back to the what we started to see in spring of 2020 was more investors getting involved in the markets. And it's led to a lot of stories around meme stocks and others. Right. But the underlying principle is really important that there are people who are now investing in the markets and learning more about the markets at an earlier stage. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't the case on the same scale that it is now. So we're seeing more and more, especially a younger demographic, Mm -hmm. engaging in the market and learning about that. Now, part of our role is to educate them and make sure that they have the tools they need to make informed investment decisions and have the continue to have the protections around around the markets. And there are always some consequences of a new clientele. And so that we're navigating that as an industry. Yeah. But it's a generally a really good thing. And we want to make sure that their experience is good because that is important to the long-term success of, of our markets overall. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, Mark Benioff talks about a trust crisis right now. I think we're all experiencing that, whether it's in government or social networks or, you know, institutions at large. Where do you see the markets playing and, and the New York Stock Exchange playing in that role around trust? Yeah, that trust crisis is so critical, and I completely agree with Mark, and I think we see it manifest itself in a number of different places, but it's really based on the same thing. People feel left out, mm-hmm. and they feel like they're not getting access to the same opportunity set other people are getting access to. And so we see it in our government. We see it in digital currencies. We see it in meme stocks. Mm-hmm. You know, We're seeing it play out in a number of ways, but it really is all about trust. One thing that we can do to build trust is to communicate more and to provide more transparency. Mm-hmm. When people don't see the whole story, they assume that there are parts of the story that are being hidden from them intentionally. Mm-hmm. And very often, that's not the case. Very often, we have just done a poor job as a financial industry in sharing details around the whole story. I like to say no Mad Libs. If Mm -hmm. you leave blanks in the stories, people will write crazy stories. Mm -hmm. And so don't leave the blanks. Mm -hmm. Just just provide more transparency into how the system works, who is playing what role, what are the financial incentives for each of the roles that exist. Mm -hmm. Because when people find out that people had gotten compensated for a part of their their role in the markets and Mm -hmm. they didn't know it before, it comes 
very, it's very often accompanied by a distrust. It's like, well, wait a minute, I didn't know. But if you tell someone we get paid to do this, mm-hmm. they're they're usually okay with it. There's a service that's being provided as long as they know it was existing. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. reading reviews online, right? And you see somebody say, hey, we might receive compensation if you click on this. Right. Maybe you're okay with it as long as you know that they weren't hiding it and it wasn't a distrustful thing. Right, right. Okay, I want to change gears a little bit. So clearly your passion about this industry is clear. What drew you into finance and being in this world? Uh, it was an accident. I, I fell into it. I wasn't drawn into it. I was studying engineering in school, and, and I ended up with an internship on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Mm-hmm. And as an 18-year-old kid at the time, I just, within 10, 15 minutes, I could feel the energy. Yeah. I didn't share the passion yet that I have now for what was really happening there. I was really drawn in by the camaraderie and the the pace, you know, mm-hmm. just the high energy level on the trading floor. So I loved it. And I, I finished my degree and I ended up working on the trading floor as a trader for 10 years. And, and I sort of fell into that career. I, I didn't seek it out, but frankly, not much has changed. <laughs> if I think back through my entire career, yeah. most of my opportunities came my way without my necessarily seeking them out. Mm-hmm. So working as a trader for 10 years, tell me about that. What, I mean, this is on the floor. You've got the notepad, you're yelling the whole thing. Yes, yeah, I, so I, I was a, what was known as a specialist. Uh, today it's known as a designated market maker. So every company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange has a market maker who's assigned for overseeing trading in their stocks. And then all of the other brokers are bringing their buy and sell orders that they're representing on behalf of their customers to that central location. Mm -hmm. And so that was the job that I had was overseeing trading in the stocks that I was assigned Mm -hmm. uh, on the on the trading floor. And and it was, you know, I, I, I loved it for quite some time. What I saw and this was back in the mid 90s or early 2000s, the way technology was you know, technology was continuing to improve and the pace of change was continuing to, we were receiving orders faster, but yeah. the model wasn't changing. Right. So I believe that technology and humans are more powerful when integrated in a thoughtful way than either on its own. Mm-hmm. But integrated in a thoughtful way is an important part of that. Yeah. You need to use it to make the people stronger. Right. And at the time, it was almost in conflict because the faster that orders were being delivered and the faster that things were happening, trading was happening so quickly and the volumes were so significant, but the model hadn't really changed. And so that was a driver for me to say, you know, if we're not going to adopt and really evolve the way the model works, it, perhaps it's time for, for me to move on. Yeah. I mean, the role of technology right now in the speed, in the algorithmic training, you know, it, it, yeah. is it still buyers and sellers really coming together or is it just machines that are running? At the end of the day, it's, issuers and their investors, right? Yeah. And and machines are playing a role in that. So mm-hmm. we process on a busy day, our peak message day, 330 billion messages in one day. Wow. That's a lot, right? Mm-hmm. If you put that into scale, there's single digit Google searches that are done in a, in a day around the world. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a lot of messages happening. All of those are not happening by an individual person, but a person is very often making the decision to buy or sell, then those orders are getting sliced up and put into algorithms to execute at smaller scales. You know, so to limit the impact they have on the market, they're really spread out into smaller pieces. And so there, while yes, there are computers that are responding and making decisions based on signals that they're reading, there are also people who are making decisions to buy and sell, whether they're doing it on their own for their own accounts or if they're acting on behalf of pooled resources. And so think about mutual funds and others that are investing with active managers. All of those orders end up 
going into a computer algorithm at some point in time for the most part, and you're seeing them appear very, in very similar ways. Okay, so getting back to your career journey, so you're a trader. Now, there, clearly, there's a lot of growth from there to the C-suite. Uh, <laughs> tell me, what were some of those keys to growth, some key relationships, some turning points? Just how did that happen? If I had to give credit to one aspect of how I approached my career that I think really led to my success, it was I was always most interested in how we could succeed as a team. Mm -hmm. I was less interested in my own personal career trajectory. There is nothing wrong with somebody who has a plan and is executing on their plan for mm -hmm. their career. Mm -hmm. That just wasn't me. You know, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have a specific step that I wanted to take. What I found, though, was that because I was just focused on the success of the organization, I always had people within the organization who wanted me to be successful in that goal. And mm -hmm. so they would come help me help them. Mm -hmm. And that was how I always found sponsors that were interested in giving me more responsibility and giving me more things to do because my focus was to, to make my boss look good, right? Mm -hmm. And not because of the personal nature of it, but really because of what it meant for our team and our organization and our win rate. Mm -hmm. And that, that's a theme that I saw throughout. Sometimes it meant making trade-offs that seemingly for my own personal career might have seemed like an odd decision to make. For mm -hmm. example, if I took a role that was a smaller role than I had, but sh I shocked people when I would do that. Mm -hmm. They would say, you had a bigger title, you had a bigger job, why would you go take that? And I thought, well, I can make more of an impact and this is the right thing for the team if I go do this. And you know, there were times where I was offered roles, you know, we want you to be the co-head of this group, or we want this person to report into you. And if I didn't think those were the right decisions for the overall team, I would just talk about why mm -hmm. and sometimes turn down those opportunities and lead to more success in a different role. And so I, I wasn't really focused on my personal success. I was just focused on our joint success. And, and that was just how I approached every job that I had. Mm -hmm. And were there times when you did have to make an ask that you weren't comfortable with, or I think we've all had those moments where <laughs> you've crafted that note, you're about to send it, and should I do this or not? How did you manage those situations? You know, it's funny because I, I did almost the opposite of that. I, I, I would get asked to do things that I very often would say no to, and it's definitely common for women to turn down roles and opportunities. And what I saw was I needed the offer to be not only an explicit conversation about a new role or a new opportunity, I needed it to be a conversation. I needed it to be more than just an invite or an offer. Mm -hmm. And what I, I believe we need to do when we think about diversity in the workforce and inclusion and, and equality is not only change who we're offering opportunities to, but change the way we ask and change the way we talk about them because not everybody is created the same way and not everybody's driven by the same things. Mm -hmm. And what I found was I, I worked for a guy who the first time he offered me a job and he would use that term, offered me a job, he mm -hmm. said, who do you think I could get to come do this? And I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I later found out that was his way of offering me. He wanted me to raise my hand right. and say it's me. <laughs> right. And I didn't raise my hand, so I didn't get that role at the time. Yeah. I continued to work with him for a few years, and we met in the middle. You know, The yeah. next time it was, hey, what about you? And then mm -hmm. the time after that, it was, oh, come on, you should do this. It'll be great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, towards the end of our time working together, 
it was literally, all right, I need you, I know you need time to wrap your head around things. So what do you think about doing this? And right. and that communication style really was a, a light bulb for me as mm -hmm. a leader and a manager mm -hmm. that we can't talk to all of our team members the same way and expect the same results because people are driven by different things. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it play out. I've, I've approached it when I have seen other people turn down opportunities. I've talked to them about why they're turning it down. And very often they'll turn around and then say, okay, fine, I'll do it. You mm -hmm. know, when, once they realize that they just need more of a conversation around it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I imagine in the world that you're living in is a lot of men yeah. <laughs> and the communication style and how have you managed that over the years? How, how has that felt to be in that world that is so male dominated? Yeah, I mean, what makes you different makes you stand out. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. So I didn't view my gender as something that was a negative that I had to hide. It was something I leaned in on. It's very often easier to have a conversation in a male dominated environment as a woman that you might be able to say things other people wouldn't be able to get away with. <laughs> and so there is some element of yeah, there, of course there are hard times and there are certain people that are going to be dismissive and I just don't have time or place for that. I tend to not focus on spending a lot of energy on people that I think are going to be blockers. But if I'm talking to somebody that I know sees the value that I can provide and respects my opinion, those are the people I talk to more often and they become my sponsors. I mean, often get asked the question, how do you find a sponsor yeah. in an organization? And my answer is always, they find you. Mm -hmm. And if you are showing them what you can bring to the table, mm -hmm. there will be people in that organization that will want to help you mm -hmm. be successful. And that's been my approach. And so how do you show them? I think a lot, a lot of times for people, you're doing your job, you're doing well, but maybe you're not as comfortable being more out front with it or your personality is such that it's just not as clear. How do you show that? Yeah. So that's a great point too, because there are definitely times where I've been uncomfortable with things that were new to me. And, you know, if you think about the difference between a sponsor and a mentor, mm -hmm. a sponsor really is somebody who's navigating you through the organization and helpful in, in progressing your career. Yeah. A mentor is somebody who can give you advice and, and take that approach. And yeah. when I get the question about mentorship, I look for mentorship moments. Where is there something that I'm struggling with? And instead of having one person that I'm going to try to go to for everything mm -hmm. with sort of a undefined terms of, you know, contract terms on mm -hmm. being a mentor, mm -hmm. I call somebody and I say, hey, you're really good at this. Mm -hmm. Can I ask your opinion on this one particular issue? I have never reached out to anyone and asked for advice and had them turn me down. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's an element of how I've gotten advice on how to lean in, how to handle a situation that was more complicated. With respect to showing people your commitment to work, it's asking questions, asking mm -hmm. how you can be helpful, understanding what the problems are. And, you know, problem solving is such a core part of what we do every day, you know, communicating to each other. Those are the types of skills that make you a really valuable employee, regardless of your experience set. Just how do you tackle a problem? And, you know, it's so much more valuable to know the right questions to ask. Mm -hmm than it is to have the right answers. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've I've engaged with people and shown them that that I'm interested in learning and, mm -hmm. and who doesn't want to to learn, right? If you're not learning and you're not thinking that there's more that we could be doing, that's when businesses stagnate and, and run into issues. Mm -hmm. And how have you found that with balance? I know in my own life, I can see things at work that could use improvement. And sometimes it's like, I'm not prepared to take that on right now. And then you just have to throw your hat in the ring sometimes. How do you make that determination of how much you can take on and how you can balance that? Yeah, I mean, that is a hard question, you know, and, and it's hard to get right when there's 
you know, we talk a lot about work-life balance, which I think is just a, a fake thing. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, life and work is fully integrated. As soon as you had a device that you could carry in your pocket yeah. that anybody could get you 24-7, there was no longer any such thing as leaving the office and yeah. going home and, and that being your your lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a very personal decision when you think about how much you can take on and, mm -hmm. and what approach there can be. And for me personally, you know, having the right team makes such a, a big part of success there, you know, building a team where you push each other to be the best version of yourselves. I mean, I love to hire people who I think are so much better than I am, mm -hmm. that I, I think it's crazy that they work for me. Those are the people I want on my team. Right. And, you know, they challenge you to take on more responsibility when, when you're feeling like maybe you don't want to do it. Yeah. I think being able to lean on a team and the power of when you have a team working together in the right way. Is, yeah. is amazing what you can accomplish with a small group of people. Intent is everything, right? And yeah. if you're sharing the intent of wanting to be successful as a group, mm -hmm. then I, you know, you can challenge each other. You can disagree. You know, negative feedback, constructive feedback is mm -hmm. one of the most valuable things anyone could give me mm -hmm. because that's how we can get better. Mm -hmm. So I'm never somebody who says, you know, don't give it to me straight. I, I want it straight. And, right. and, it matters though, what is the intent? And if the intent is to make some, belittle somebody else and make them look small so mm -hmm. you look better, then there's absolutely no place for that. Mm -hmm. But if it's just to grow as a team, then that then that's required. Mm -hmm. And you know, it makes me think about the sort of vision that you need as a leader and the ability to communicate that. Because I think there's so many times where there's frustration on a team because there's that lack of clarity and mm -hmm. you, you, people don't know where they're going. And as a leader, that can be hard. You're inside of a big organization. You're not sure necessarily what the answer is, but you have to fake it till you mm -hmm. make it. Like, how do you set a vision and make that clear and get people bought in on that? Yeah, it's important to communicate and not just to a specific team about what they're doing, but about the overall story mm -hmm. because it's very easy for different teams to be working on their piece of the puzzle and have no idea what this picture means. Right. And then they don't feel connected. Right. And if they don't feel connected, I mean, we spend a lot of our time at work mm -hmm. and working on things and, and you need that passion to keep you going through the hard times. Mm -hmm. And so sharing that is really important. And that comes down to telling the story, explaining what we're doing. And certainly during the pandemic, you had to find new ways to do that because mm -hmm. suddenly people were spread out across the country and, we weren't able to communicate in the ways we had done before. So we had to look for new ways to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know at Salesforce, we really we have some very clear core values that have been laid out from the beginning of the company that everybody understands. I'm curious what those core values are for the New York Stock Exchange. Have you tweaked those or changed those or what does that look like? We do tweak them. And that's a hotly debated session too when we talk about should we change and even sometimes just a word, right? Yeah. Whether you're debating whether teamwork or collaboration is more reflective of how we want to live our day to day, those are our, we do tweak them, but they're, we're very focused on being aligned. And, and our culture is very driven by debate and constructive debate, but then we all align once a decision is made. So we'll, well, anyone can have an opinion, anyone can hash it out, but then once we make a decision, we're, we're aligned and we're focused on executing together as a team. And our core values, you know, we, we focus on communication, we focus on teamwork and that integrity and professionalism all of those things, innovation, those are all drivers. And we believe, I believe that those are skills that you can apply to any problem. And we want to make sure that we're having an impact and, and providing people with the most opportunity out there. And that's, you know, connecting people to opportunity 
is what gets us excited when we think about people planning for their futures and investing in their futures. And mm-hmm. and that's a driver across our entire organization. Mm-hmm. But we don't do the everyone take a slide, but we get <laughs> together and we do cross groups where we bring teams from different parts of the organization and sit down and talk about either one of our values or more broadly, the our overall culture. And we spend a lot of time talking about culture because we do believe it's it's been a driver to our success. Yeah. And I think that ability to communicate across the silos in an mm-hmm. organization, it's natural. Particularly at Salesforce, there's been hyper growth. There's now 60,000 people. There's no way you're going to talk to everybody or know what's happening in sales versus marketing versus product, et cetera. So coming up with ways to communicate that across those lines is challenging. And so how are you thinking about that in your organization? Yeah, it's a great question. And what surprises a lot of people is to hear that the New York Stock Exchange is founder-led at a, at a high level, <laughs> considering we're 229 years old. Right. But ICE is our parent company. Intercontinental Exchange was founded and, and 12 years after being founded, decided it was going to buy the New York Stock Exchange, which was a 220-year-old institution. Mm-hmm. So we have that entrepreneurial spirit that runs through our entire company. Mm-hmm. And it did require some evolution because it was a small startup where people were sitting in a room and talking about what we were going to do next and, and where it was heading. When you grow, when you get much bigger, you need to change the way you're having those conversations, and right. when you, especially when you acquire a number of companies. So we've grown on, on pretty much every front, mm-hmm. and acquisition has been a big piece of that. So when you bring in another organization, the first thing we do is talk about culture mm-hmm. because if we don't have a common culture, then what has made us successful might not continue to, to drive the growth that we need to see. And so we do. We talk about the values of our culture. That means some people opt out. Right. Mm-hmm. If they don't feel like they align with the culture mm-hmm. of a company that we're going to be. But I don't think that's a bad thing. Right. I mean, you're you're empowering people to say, hey, we're doing an acquisition, mm-hmm. but this is what we believe has made us successful. This is why we care about it. So this is a big part of our culture and this is how it's going to be here. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty is the worst thing for people to know that this is where we're going and this is our path and this is why. It gives people the, the power to say, OK, I, I love that and I want to be part of it. Or maybe this is a good time for me to go look for the next thing. And right. you get to a much more mature space much faster. And, well, and that's part of that transparency that you're yes. talking about. There it is. Yeah. 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 It was, I mean, it's a tough conversation when you acquire a company and people feel like, wait a minute, that culture sounds a little bit different than ours. Right. And and we really like our culture. Mm-hmm. But it's much better to have that conversation straight out than to run through, you know, and, and have it last for six months. Just got a couple minutes left. Okay. This has been great. I'm learning a lot <laughs> that I didn't know about the New York Stock Exchange and about how you work, which is great. So you meet with CEOs all the time, I'm guessing, and you hear about digital transformation, future of work, impact of COVID, where things are going. We've been through all this uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Can you give us just a, some highlights or threads that you've been hearing out in the marketplace? Absolutely. And the past 18 months has challenged all of us on every single front, right? I mean, as businesses as individuals, as family members, literally everything was thrown at us over the past 18 months. It's led a lot of people to be self-reflective about what they are doing. And, you know, you hear stories about the great resignation. And so when I talk to CEOs, they are all actively thinking about how to engage with their teams and how to take what we've learned from the past 18 months and see where it's going. There's a lot of good that can come out of negative experiences and, and challenges. So certainly global pandemic no one wanted that, and, mm-hmm. and I am not grateful for it. But that doesn't mean that we can't see what we learned from this and, and lead to better places. 
there is a wealth divide in this country. And, and if we start to look at what does this unlock and what have we seen over the past 18 months, can we invest in small communities where people can work remotely in other cities? Mm-hmm. Do all businesses have to have their offices in San Francisco and New York and Atlanta? Mm-hmm. Or can we look at the entire country and think about where, where can we build an ecosystem of businesses? When we think about the disparity around you know, diverse, a diverse workforce and, and where is their bias the fact that we can work remotely in a successful way does give us the ability to rethink some of the truths that we thought we had around where people need to be to work. That said, I don't think a fully remote work environment is the right thing for our company. When Mm -hmm. I look at our attrition rate, it's highest among the people who were hired during the pandemic Mm -hmm. because they don't necessarily feel that sense of connection, just like we were talking about. What is the mission? What's the goal? And so making people part of that is, is certainly important. But we can learn from what we've seen over the past 18 months and redesign the future of work. And that's exciting to me because I, I, we can make it more inclusive than it had been. And do you see with that access question, it, I just, I'm wondering if you ever see a world where that's part of the reporting that public companies are doing, where we can start to really measure that and that's part of their market position. Yeah, you make a great point. And this is an area where I think it's more of a challenge than we give it credit for the companies can raise money privately. Mm -hmm. So when we use our public markets to encourage the behavior that we want to see from companies, we have to acknowledge the risk that the alternative is companies will stay private. Mm -hmm. So I believe we don't want to put too much on public companies that doesn't exist on private companies Mm -hmm. because investors will lose access to those opportunities Mm -hmm. and that's a, a careful divide. And there are a lot of disclosures around every topic that are continuing to be added onto the public company landscape. And and it is a great tool for us to to drive change. Mm -hmm. You ask what I hear about from CEOs, it's that impact that they're having. And ESG is such an area of focus for almost every single company I talk to. Mm -hmm. It's not new for all of them, but telling that story is so much more important to them than it was before even if they were already investing in their communities, in the planet, in their, you know, in their employees, they're now thinking about how do we communicate that? A lot of that has to do with disclosures and data so that you can measure progress and measure success. So we collect data around all of those criteria that companies are are reporting Mm -hmm. so that they can not only see what are, you know, how are investors viewing their work, but how are their peers? What are they disclosing? What What are they reporting on? What are their vendors and their suppliers? Mm-hmm. What, what's their performance like? So they can work with parties who, who are aligned with their goals. And so I do think data and measurement is a big part of it. And, and I mean to apply it's not. It's just that balance again because you right. want to make sure you have the tools that investors can make informed decisions but not limit the access to opportunities that they would have. Right. And this is where the incentives get tricky. Yeah. And how do we address that where if the answer is, well, I'm just not going to participate in the public market anymore, which is an option for sure, but then where can pressure be applied? So our our approach has been through solutions. So we've looked at the companies that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange are more focused than any other corporate group on ESG. Mm -hmm. We know this is a subject that they're passionate about. So instead of saying, all of you must do this, Mm -hmm. let's harness the power of those of you that really want to drive change Mm -hmm. and and scale that up. So we've done a number of things. One, One, for diversity, we launched the NYC Board Advisory Council. That taps into the networks of 20 CEOs that are listed on the New York Stock Exchange 
They have to give us diverse candidates that they would vouch for as board members mm -hmm. so that when anyone in our community is looking to diversify their board, they not only can get access to those names, but also to the person who vouched for them so that they can actually talk to them about whether or not this person might be a good fit for their company. Mm -hmm. That's a solution-based approach mm -hmm. to, you know, we're not saying all public companies have to do this. But there are a number of companies that are really trying to drive that change. We've had 15 candidates that have joined corporate boards since we launched two and a half years ago. And that's, you know, we're seeing progress. So, you know, looking at the companies in the Russell 1000 that are listed on NYC, 86% of them have 20% of their boards are women. That's very different than it was before. And so, you know, we, we've talked a lot about should there be one woman on a board one woman's not enough, right? right. That, that's not the standard that we want to hold people to. Yeah. Let's just talk about providing solutions. So, you know, diversity is one area. We recently announced an initiative to file listing standards around natural asset companies mm -hmm. that would give investors the ability to put their dollars into preserving the natural resources like rainforests and water, all the things that are critical to our life mm -hmm. <laughs> on earth. Mm -hmm. Let's give them a tool so that they can actually invest in those resources and the actions that we're all taking to preserve them become something that you can actually benefit from, not just by by having that that those natural assets thrive, but mm -hmm. also financially too. You're saying, hey, we believe in this future, and this is a this is a tool we want to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's similar to our sustainability cloud, where we can you know, a company can use that to track their carbon footprint basically, yes. and then be able to share that data publicly, et, et cetera. So yeah, I think again, it goes back to trust and transparency, yeah. which is you know. Is the information out there? Can I access it? And then people will decide. Yeah, trust, transparency, and access. Yeah, you know, I think those are the things that we need to bring together in a way that gives people opportunity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, I've got a last question. If you could choose any different profession from what you do now, what would it be? That's a, always a tough one for me. I mean, I I love the hospitality industry. I love restaurants. When I took a brief stint between, I went to culinary school and and I just think there's something so special about sharing an experience, especially in a, in a restaurant or a hotel and, and that hospitality space. So I'm not sure exactly what it would be there, but mm -hmm. that's always an industry that's intrigued me. Okay. You have to tell me about culinary school a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, there, you know, if you read some of the articles, I went off to become a chef and, and that's not quite the story, but I knew that I was taking some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. Yeah. And I always want to eat. <laughs> and so I figure I'm going to take that passion and go learn how to cook. And it's a skill that, that I won't lose. So right. I, I spend a few months doing that in between jobs. Okay. Well, great. Stacy. thank you so much for joining today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Look forward to talking again sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. That was Stacey Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Next week, Raj Shehshadri. She's the woman in charge of all data at MasterCard, one of the biggest data companies in the world. And she tells us how she spent more than a decade on the wrong path and needed to look deep inside to figure out what would allow her to live her passions. So thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios.